I'm going to take you over to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, I don't think it would be unfair of me to say that this section of Scripture is Rhonda's favorite, right? Um, not particularly 11 and 12, but, but um, yeah, 11 reads like a romance novel, so that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, uh, it's just love the stories of David, love, love the story of David's mighty men, all that stuff. So we're going to be there in just a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, when we were together last week, Saul was ensconced as king over the United Kingdom of Israel. You remember he had a vendetta out for David, and Jonathan was the go-between on that. That didn't last long, that kind of truce between those two leaders. But, um, but uh, Saul leads the nation for about 40 years, I believe. Um, um, anyway, he, he leads until literally the last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan, who was our hero last week, and two other sons die in battle. As 2 Samuel dawns, David hears that news and finds himself um, uh, pretty quickly installed as king. You remember, he was king-elect, as it was, but he finds himself installed pretty quickly as... Um, uh, after he mourns the death of his dear friend Jonathan and his king Saul, he's installed as king over Judah, over the southern part of the kingdom. And then a civil war ensues in the beginning chapter or two of Second Samuel. And uh, following that, David becomes the uh, king over the entire nation of Israel, and it kind of becomes a united nation. Now, what I'm going to say to you is that Israel, I don't believe, has ever been more unified than it was um, in David's day. Now, you could argue it was that also um, in his son Solomon's reign, and I would agree with that. But David expanded territory. Uh, the nation has never been more politically powerful, never been more militarily powerful, uh, never been more economically strong than it was during uh, the years that David led, and guess what else? The nation of Israel has never gotten worship better than they did when David was king either. You can find evidence of that through uh, kind of his journal, which became a hymn book for the Hebrew people uh, that you and I know as the Psalms, most of those he wrote. So... Um, you got all these wonderful things going on. The most popular king in Israel's history, arguably. Now, how, how do I know that? Because he's still the most popular king in Israel's history. Um, you know, you don't go to McDonald's in Israel, you go to McDavid's, okay? So, um, uh, I mean, it, 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 it's pretty incredible. So, everything was going well. Everything was um, taken care of, right? What could go wrong? And then chapter 11. <laughs> uh, we're going to be right there for a little bit here. Um, um, it's interesting. If you read, um, and I, I'm working through 2 Samuel myself right now. If you read chapters 11, I'm sorry, chapters 5 through 11, nothing but success, 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 success. And then chapter 11. And that's where we're going to start today. Okay, Steve Blair, 
Can I get you to read the first six verses? In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbi. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Okay, now, it's interesting that it, it may be. I, I, I don't think in the context of, um, of what God inspires to be written in, in, in the Holy Scriptures that this is true of God. But for you and I, we're just kind of intrigued about David's story because he was such a man of passions in, in so many different ways. Um, there are 62 chapters dedicated to him in the Old Testament, almost more than anybody else. There are, or at least he's referred to in those. There are 59 references in the New Testament to David, uh, definitely more than any other Old Testament figure, which, and that includes our friend Joseph that we studied a couple weeks ago. That includes Moses, the lawgiver. That includes Father Abraham. Um, so there's something intriguing about this life. David, we think, when chapter 11 dawns, we think he's been king for maybe 20 years over the United Kingdom, okay? We think that he's probably in his 50s, okay? Probably in his 50s, and everything is kind of hunky-dory. General Joab, which was his uh, kind of um, uh, general in charge, was on the front lines of battle, the king really didn't have a whole lot of problems. So he stays back in the palace. He was relaxing. I read somewhere that uh, I've never had this in my adult life. I've never been able to say this. But somebody, one commentator I read said that he was, one of his problems was he was tired from not being tired. He'd been tired his whole life. Remember, he was running for his life through most of 1 Samuel. If you've ever been to that place, watch out if you're tired from not being tired anymore. Uh, not been there. Don't know what that's going to feel like. Uh, talked to a friend this week about retirement. I don't know when that's going to happen for me. I don't know about you, but the guys that I talk to who retire say they work harder in retirement than before. Gene, is that kind of true? So, um, so, but, but, so here he was. He was likely bored and unaccountable. And so, he's a sitting duck in verse 1. Um, one uh, commentator I read this week said the problem may have been that the human's in bed, not in battle. He was in bed, not in battle. I find that kind of true. Go, go back with me to uh, chapter 5, and I'm going to read... Uh, 11 and um, 12 and 13. Okay, chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. 
David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, that's just kind of a parenthesis in there. But what I want you to recognize is that back in Deuteronomy 17, Moses says, under the inspiration of God, Moses says, you're going to want a king when you get to the promised land. Here's what a king's going to do. Warn him against this. Warn him against taking, taking on horses and chariots. And one of the other things he warns against is warn him against taking multiple wives. Well, if David knew that warning, and I think he probably did, he didn't heed it. And so here he is, this passionate guy. Um, he was passionate about everything. What, what do you know of that David was passionate about? It was certainly, it had this friend that he loved and now he was dead. He was passionate about getting the temple built. He didn't get to do that, but I mean, he did, he literally had it set up for his son Solomon to succeed there. Had the plans in place, had all the building materials bought and paid for. What else was he passionate about? He's passionate about the nation of Israel. He was, I mean, uh, if you look at, at the back of your Bible, if you look at maps, it'll show the period or the uh, territory that David had conquered, and it's larger in his reign than ever before. No wonder the Israelites loved David as, as, as they look back on that time. From Dan to Beersheba, you know that story. He was passionate about Bathsheba. He was, and he was passionate about, here's the problem, he was and this is going to seem inconsistent, and it was. I don't pretend to understand it. He was passionate about the worship of God alone. I defy you to read any chapter in your Bible where David ever bowed the knee to another small g God. He got that completely right. Okay? He couldn't say that about his son. He couldn't say that about his son's son. But David got that right. So he's passionate about the worship of God alone. By the way, when I say small g gods, how many of those were there? Millions. Trick question. None. Oh, that's true. None. <laughs> yeah. But Dan, thanks, you played right in my hand. Yeah, I did. There were none. <laughs> they were not. There was one. You remember in Deuteronomy 6, 4, that thing that that. Uh, little Hebrew children quote still every day, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He got that right. He was passionate about that and the worship of God alone. But he was also passionate about girls, women. We think at this point he had five wives, at least at some point he did, and he had other concubines, servants. So, It's just interesting, that dichotomy, isn't it? I think. So, uh, in verse 2, in a moment of temptation, David lost control of his passions. Now, would somebody go over to, I want somebody to read uh, Romans 14, uh, verse 12 and 13. There's something to be said here, and I don't want to go too far with this. My daughter would not be proud of me, and she may be on 
on Scripture, so um, on uh, Facebook today. So I want to say this really, really carefully. But for a, for a lady to take a bath on her roof in full view of the king was not a good thing either, okay? Listen to what Paul says about this in, in Romans 14, verse 12 and 13. Somebody got it? I got it. Read it, Dan. So that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or a occasion to fall in his brother's way. Here's a guy whose passions were loosed, out of control, and there was a stumbling block thrown in front of him. You ever had that happen to you? I'm going to go back to my motorcycling days. I've probably done this before, so forgive me. One of the things they told us not to do, so I, I, by the way, I read all kinds of motorcycling magazines back in those days. I took courses and uh, read everything I could read on staying safe. And one of the things they said is that if something fell in the road ahead of you, what's the thing you want to do? You want to look at it, and everybody says, don't, okay? So this is true of you in the car. If somebody drops a two-by-four in the road in front of you, now, by the way, if you're on two wheels, it's much more dangerous than if you're on four. You look beyond it. Because if you look at it, you're going to hit it. Paul, did you, you remember that from your motorcycle days? You just you kind of looked beyond it, and you figured your way around it. David didn't look beyond this. He looked at it. And by the way, the, the, one of the commentators I read this week says that when the Old Testament is very sparing in its use of the word very, and here it says, at least in my translation in the New American Standard, it says that this woman was very beautiful in appearance. The Bible doesn't use very, very often. Swindoll says she must have been a knockout. And he looked, and he leered. So he calls in verse 3. He sends for a servant. Um, and he basically says, who lives over there? Okay. Points to that area. My, my prediction would be that Bathsheba's still not on the roof. And he, he points over there and says, who lives over there? And it's interesting to me that the king's servant tried to give him what I believe here is a subtle warning. Who lives over there? And uh, look at what the servant, how the servant answers him. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uh, he doesn't come right out and say, say it, but his implication is, uh, oh, king, that's somebody else's wife over there. Okay. You're gonna, you're stealing my thunder. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you since you're bringing it up, Cindy. I'm gonna have you go if you don't mind in a little bit. I'm gonna have you read First Chronicles 11:41. Now, now you're gonna hate this when you get there because there's a bunch of names in there, but. But there's one that you'll recognize. First Chronicles 11.41. We'll get there in just a minute, but you're absolutely right. Um, so he sends for his servant, says, who, who lives over there? Uriah lives over there. And by the way, 
Uh, who you've been looking at probably was his wife. Okay, so verse four is just an economy of words here. David sent messengers and took her and on and on and on. This was intended to be, I really believe this. I read this this week and I, I thought about it for a while and I think it's the, the commentator I read was right. This was intended to be a one night stand. Okay? They sleep together. She cleanses for uncleanness, goes back to life. It's over and done with. Doesn't kind of work out that way sometimes, does it? Because... Neither of them, and sometimes neither of us, and some of us, don't consider the consequences, okay? So, you got to catch verse 4 and verse 5. Those were unintended consequences. This was intended to be, a, you know, just a thing, and then we're done. And so, by the time we get to verse 6, the king needs a plan. So if you read the intervening verses in verse 7 through 13, uh, uh, Joab, the general, sends Uriah to David. That's Bathsheba's husband. He sends him home um, to be with his wife, thinking that'll cover this all up. But he won't go. Now, Cindy, here's where I want you to read this. There's a reason Uriah won't go. Uh, there is a list in front. I had to had to kind of look for this because um, I thought it was in Samuel, but it's not. It's in First Chronicles. There's a list of thirty men that are known as David's mighty men, and there are Rhonda, help me here. There are three among the thirty that are particularly bad mamma jammas, and um, um, Benny is one of those guys who who killed the lion in the pit on a snowy day, which is uh, that's about all we know about him. But then Mark Batterson writes an entire book about uh, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Great book, if you like Batterson's writing, and I do. Um, uh, but it's all about Benaiah and what kind of a guy he was. One of David's mighty men, one of the three, I believe, Benaiah was one of the three. So there's a name embedded in uh, 1 Chronicles 11, down in verse 41. You're going to recognize it. Cindy, read that. Right there. Not an Israelite. He was a convert during a time when David was gathering men around him that were unacceptable to almost anybody else. And they came to David and said, can we, can we be with you? Yes, sir. And he found out that some of these guys were something else as far as soldiers. This guy was a soldier's soldier. One of David's mighty men. And so when David sends him home, he sleeps on the porch with a bunch of other soldiers. Couldn't think of himself going home, having a steak dinner, you know, getting a shower, just because the king says you can. He's a soldier. Uh, some will write that he was greater in his integrity, at least in this moment, than the king himself was. So let's go down now and read about a bit of a cover-up, well, more than a bit of a cover-up. Uh, John, can I, can I prevail on you? I want you to start at verse 14 uh, in, in chapter 11. 
and, and I, I may stop you in a minute, but, but at least read, uh, we'll read part of the way down to verse 28. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and said it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. Now stop right there, John, because I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But let, let's let's cover just a little bit that uh, of that. So David figures this will be easily fixed. Uh, the thing with Uriah going home didn't work, so he comes up with another plan. And if you read verse 15 like I read it, he calls Uriah into the throne room. They have some military small talk. You know, um, and um, and then in, in the, I think it's in verse fifteen here, David literally writes out orders, puts it in Uriah's hands, and says, "Head back to battle." And Uriah is now carrying his own death warrant. That's just heinous to me, but that's what happens. So. Um, John, I want you to pick it up here and read 19 down through 21. Now, here's the deal. Uh, General Joab knew what would interest the king. So when the king asked, why did you get so close? And he even references another battle where somebody throws a millstone and kills a bunch of guys. Why'd you get so close? Joab knows what answer to give him. So John, read 19 through 21. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, so the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that we'd shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech's son of Jerusalem? Did the woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in the best? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite. That's what he was really interested in. And Joab knew it. Joab's not fooled by any of this stuff. Okay? Now, I want you to look with me. Joab knew what would interest the king. Now, I want you to look with me at, me, at, with me at verse 25. I'm not even going to have John read it. I want you to read it. How would you put verse 25 in your own words? How would you put David's words in your own words? Give me a couple from me. You ready? Ah, war is hell. You know, collateral damage. Isn't it interesting? It scares me it's so interesting. How he passes this off. He gets mad. Starts to get mad about why did you guys go so close to the wall where you knew you'd be shot at? And then the messenger, queued up by General Joab, says, oh, by the way, you're right, the Hittite, one of your guys, 
died also. Well, war is hell. How far has this guy gone? So, um, (laughs) let me read you something from, uh, this is from a book titled Temptation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from back in the, in, the, uh, in the 1930s, okay? Here's what he says. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Now, by the way, if you're, if you're reading David's story and you're thinking, well, that's not really my deal, uh, Bonhoeffer doesn't let any of us off the hook. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Remember those words. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not hear, fill us. This is golden and classic. Satan here does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. David's forgotten God. Now, his plan succeeded, right? Look at chapter 11, and um, uh, um, John, can I come back to you and you read? I, I put verse 28 there. By the way, I'm not making up stuff. There is not a 28th verse in this chapter, okay? I thought I looked at, tw- and saw a 28 there. Um, read 26 and 27, John, if you wouldn't mind. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for as you turn the page, and literally my page doesn't turn, it's just right there. As you turn the page, chapter 12, you figure that David's plan had succeeded, right? If 27 is not in your Bible. And so when chapter 12 dawns, it's been likely a year, okay? What's happened in that year? Bathsheba mourns the loss of Uriah. Um, David calls her to the palace. They get married. She has a baby. Didn't take a whole year, but it's probably been about a year since chapter 11 took place. Okay? Probably been, we think. What's that year? Okay, we've talked about some things that have happened in that year, but what has that year been like? Okay? I want you to go with me because we'll come back here in a minute. I want you to go with me to the right quite a bit, maybe a, maybe a quarter inch in your Bible, to Psalm 32. All right? Later, David will describe that year. Okay, Psalm 32, I'm going to pick it up in verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Let me tell you what, a couple of things that were not true of David during that time. Uh, there was no joy. There were no psalms written during that year. No songs. Okay? He was probably an irritable leader. Um, an irritable king, a poor dad, a terrible husband. And the truth is that probably lots of people around him knew the secret. But, well, you know, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants to do. He was a sovereign king. But that year about killed him until... At the end of that year, God tapped on the shoulder of a preacher. <laughs> I want you to go with me now back to the book of Psalms. So keep your, keep your finger there. Go back with me to the book of Psalms. Go to 51. David's going to write this after chapter 12 in, in um, 2 Samuel. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us, okay? Look at the superscription. You know what a superscription is? That's what's over the chapter. So it's right under the Psalm 51 in your Bible. There is a little paragraph, a couple of sentences, maybe one sentence, before verse 1 begins. See that? that we call that kind of a superscription. And here's what it says. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Nathan was a preacher, a prophet. Don't you know that after God tapped him on the shoulder to give him his marching orders for the day, he thought, okay, this is, this is my translation of what Nathan said. You ready? <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean it? Yeah. Go. So he comes up with a story, and the story was brilliant. You can read about it in verses two, three, and four. It's about uh, a man who was traveling. He was rich, and he takes a poor man's ewe lamb and, had, and throws a banquet with it. Come on. David basically says, come on. And in verse five and six, the king indicts himself in his own anger. Bring him to me. We're going to have him killed. In verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 7. In English, now this isn't in Hebrew. I don't know, Paul, you can tell us what it is in Hebrew. I can't. But in English, four three-letter words confronts the king. The sovereign king, the guy that you know nobody had anything to say to, nobody was going to call him on anything. Four three-letter words, you ready? You are the man. This is not high five, you the man. This is not that. You are the man. And David, D, his face was as red as your blouse. Red-handed. What I love about what ensues is how David handles this. That, it, it's pretty wonderful. Um, Proverbs 27.6 talks about how loving are the bruises of a friend. 
And David recognizes how hard this must have been for this preacher whom he has grown to trust. Sometimes a friend has to bruise somebody he loves. I'm so happy that people who loved me have bruised me in the past when it was hard for them. And their words were probably more than four three-letter words. But they took logic in my heart. Do you care enough to confront? Uh, the proverb says that trustworthy are the bruises of a loving friend. Now, I want to caution us. So I need to do this only when God says so. Not just when I, okay, I read about this in the paper. I'm going to you and I'm going to let you have it. That's not God. That's you. Okay? Only when God says so. Don't you know that in this case, when God said, Nathan, I need you to go confront the king about his sin. Don't you know that Nathan did not want to do this? And I've found that in my life, when God says so, it's an ominous experience. It's something I don't want to do. So only when God says so. Second, in humility, remembering my own sin, my own fallenness. Be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. And then, Ephesians 4.15, I need to speak the truth, but I need to speak it in love. Both of those things. So let's go back to Psalm 32. Remember, we were there a little bit ago. David confesses his sin. When I kept silent about my sin, verse 3, he says, My body wasted away though my groaning all day, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. But then comes verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. He'd done that for a year. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave, catch it, the guilt of my sin. Because of a loving and trusting friend, what David did with the help of a friend allowed him to move from guilt to grace. Are you that kind of grace-filled person? I hope I am, but I'm... Got to be honest that sometimes I'm not. I've probably been in many ways less gracious in this COVID season of life than ever. I, I just can't figure it out, Mary. You know, I can't figure out why only 30% of us are back to church. I can't, can't I, I get it, but then I don't get it, you know. Uh, and it's like, okay, what are we doing here? But there have been times in my life both when somebody grace-filled came to me and said, dude, we got to talk. And it changed my life. Reordered my trajectory. And there have been times in my life also when he said, okay, I got a message for you to deliver. Uh, Lord, you sure you're talking to me? Yeah, 
if I can deliver that with grace, if I can speak the truth in love, I literally can move someone or be instrumental at least to helping God move someone from guilt, which is a terrible place to be, to grace, which is the best place to be. And David lived there the rest of his life. Okay, we have Luke 6 next week. We're going to hear what Jesus has to say about love a little bit and about loving your enemy. Ooh, this will be interesting in the political uh, season, won't it? Okay, I'll see you then. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for hanging out with me.